Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jon Favreau's new musical feature, The Lion King. A photorealistic remake of the 1994 animated film, the film follows Lion Prince Simba, the son of King Mufasa of Pride Rock. When Mufasa's death at the hands of his brother Scar results in Simba's exile and Scar's ascension to the throne, Simba must make new friends, grow up, and battle Scar to take back what is rightfully his. In addition to The Lion King, Mr. Favreau's directorial credits include the feature films The Jungle Book, Elf, Sathura, A Space Adventure, Iron Man, and Chef. The movies for television Smog, Bad Cop, Bad Cop, and Life on Parole, and the pilots for the series In Case of Emergency, Revolution, and About a Boy. Mr. Favreau also serves as the third vice president of the DGA. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Favreau spoke with director Sam Raimi about filming The Lion King. During their conversation, Mr. Favreau discusses making the film in what he describes as a multiplayer VR filmmaking game, working with actors amidst the stress of a highly technical film, and keeping an element of human imperfection within a digital realm. Hello. Thank you for that warm welcome for Mr. Favreau. And uh, John, congratulations on this visually stunning, uh, joyful, heartfelt, uplifting film that um, was really a groundbreaking, visual, uh, extraordinary experience when I saw it at the Arclight in Santa Monica. Thank you, Sam Raimi. Can we hear for Sam Raimi, by the way? How nice of you to come out and do this, Sam. I go way back with Sam. Yeah, we, uh, I, when did we first meet? I don't even know. I've known you so long, I don't even know when we, when we met. I saw you on the, we talked for the first time in depth on the set of Spider-Man 3. That's right, because I was visiting, I was getting ready to do Iron Man 1. Right. And I thought, oh my God, am I gonna have to do this? <laughs> It seems so intimidating. I climbed up. It was like a skyscraper set. I walked up like three flights of stairs in a set on a stage in a skyscraper. And there was Sam, cool as a cucumber. And Avi Arad brought me over to meet you. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah, you, you did great. I, I loved Iron Man. And my kids thought, finally, they've made a good superhero picture. <laughs> That's what they told me when they got home from seeing it. They just absolutely loved it, and so did I. It was groundbreaking also in its own way, and um, I've gone on to watch all of your technically groundbreaking and emotionally stunning pictures, like Jungle Book, for instance. Thank you, and back at you. Yeah. Where, Thank um, you. Thank you. In Jungle Book, you had um, Moguli um, in front of a green screen. I got to visit you on the set there, and I saw you working with Bill Pope. You had maybe some green props, and I saw him working around the set. But in this film, you had no motion capture whatsoever. Is that true? That's true. We, the only capture data we had was of camera positions. So it's a, little, it's, it's a little confusing. So I'll try to 
explain it as, as uh, simply and quickly as I can. We would basically the beginning of the, the there's no, there's no, everything you see is fake, right? So all the environments, all the performances, everything is, is completely built by animators and, and CGI artists. There, there's one shot, we put one live action shot in, thank you. One live action shot, does anybody know which one that is? Yes? Yes. It was the first shot in the movie with the sunrises over the circle of life. Because I wanted to put a real shot in. So if I know if people said, oh, this looks fake. On that shot, I knew that it was more about them than it was about the movie. <laughs> so there's one live action shot, but the rest of it's all built uh, by artists. And, and so we started the process with um, story department, pencils, show reels, everything you would do. It, it was exactly as you would do it in a, in a Pixar film or an animated movie until we hit layout. And that's the, the part that we're talking about now that you were asking me about. Once we got to the point where the whole movie was laid out in pencil and it played, instead of doing layout on a computer, we uploaded all the digital files into VR and created a multiplayer VR filmmaking game so that I could have a full uh, crew, live action crew, go into the digital world and I could have my cinematographer, my AD team with me, I could have my script supervisor, and I could have my set dresser, and you had the whole culture of a live action film collaborating and making creative decisions as you would in a live action film in VR space. And that's when we recorded the dollies and the cameras and all the stuff that we had in the volume, and we would record the camera movements, but all of the performances were keyframe animated. Wow, that, that's fantastic, fantastic, original. It's tomorrow's filmmaking today. It's really fantastic. So I can't help but ask, um, does that mean you wouldn't actually have to go in to work? You kind of send your avatar to the, to the virtual world? In theory, world? I could have sat home with my headset on and flown around because we would have location scouts. I think we got up to six people at a time on the set. But we were talking. So it was, you know, it was, even though it was confusing sometimes because you might walk over there in VR, but I hear your voice coming from here because you're sitting next to me uh, in, in a chair. But we quickly got used to it and we went from walking around to flying around and we built filmmaking tools like viewfinders and dolly tracks. And, and then if you took off the, the headset, you would see a real dolly with a real dolly grip and a real crane, except instead of a camera, you would have some encoding equipment. And so however that moved with all of the imperfections that come from the cinematographer operating the gear head and the dolly grip pushing the, the, the chassis, you would get all of those idiosyncrasies in, in, and that's what we were after to make this film that was built completely with animation appear to be a live action film, which was what I was hired to do. Something that was a live action adaptation of a Disney animated film like Jungle Book. And this was the way we figured out to make it appear that way. Wow, what a great stylistic approach. And that's probably what contributed to its realism so much that those little camera jiggles that the, the not perfect computer move. Yeah, they, the Japanese call it wabi-sabi, and we talked about that a lot. It's those, the human imperfection. You see the hand of the artist, the human touch, and really embracing that and not, because with animation, it's very easy to put a perfect camera move. And with CG in general, I mean... It's easiest it, to put it, the perfect camera move. You plot, you plot the two points, draw a perfect arc between them, that's the camera move. And so we effort, you know, you and I, we, we've talked about this, you know, how do you make those CG, those animated shots fit into a live action 
uh, into a live action film so they don't stand out as something different. That's right. It's a technique we employed a lot with the superhero pictures that we made. Right, right. When, uh, when the rocket roars past, or Iron Man roars past, there'd be some thrust shake from that right. camera. And it, all those little touches is what gives it its realism. And, and it's that balancing act that I learned working on the superhero films, uh, which is like, just because you could do anything with the camera doesn't mean you should. And certainly with, right, yes. <laughs> and with, and with uh, Jungle Book, because we had a live action kid to tie into, we very much tried to keep everything and all the animation as naturalistic as possible. And now as we pull that one character out, we try to maintain that sensibility. So now I understand why you went for the great Caleb Deschanel. I mean, you never would imagine the world's greatest cinematographer, one of the top four or five, uh, is um, why would his talents be used on an animated film when everything is determined by the artist, but it's completely different. Yeah, in this case, we were doing, you know, he wasn't just consulting, he was there operating the camera on all the shots. Wow. So what I knew I needed a guy like Caleb, and I've been wanting to work with Caleb forever, and I'm a very collaborative filmmaker, I, so I like to, you know, do a tech scout and talk to my department heads, and we work it out when we watch it, you know, when we, when we look at, when we watch the performance, or when we look at the, the location. And I knew I needed somebody like Caleb because I didn't have, I needed the emotion of Lion King. And I needed, uh, because it's a, the animated film is a classic. And I knew I didn't have at my disposal everything they had on the animated film. I couldn't have anthropomorphic faces. I, I, I learned pretty quickly when we were figuring out how to do the animals in Jungle Book that there's a very fine line between photoreal animation and and the island of Dr. Moreau <laughs> and if you go too far and make a photo real animal with that level of rendering if you start to make it do weird things or things that you don't expect it has it takes you out of the film at least for my taste did you limit yourself as far as the movement in the animals faces to what they could do yeah, we, we rigged them like the real animals and of course we had to have them talking so you know we used all the tricks and by the way Walt Disney was wrestling with this back when they were planning Bambi. There's recordings of him and, and you know, of, of going from the stylistic version of it that they used in Snow White to Bambi of how they would, they were discussing how do you make a, a, a more realistic animal use, uh, form phonemes, form uh, human speech. And, and the real, the real uh, learning for me was, was the movie Babe. Do you, do, you, do you remember the movie Babe with the pig? Yeah. So with Babe, I felt tremendous emotional connection to that character, but it was a real pig, and they just made the mouth move enough to talk. And so the reason they, they covered Babe like you would cover, because they were covering a real animal. And when George Miller was planning that, I've, I've talked to him, I've, you know, I, I visited him when I was promoting um, uh, the Jungle Book down there in, when I was in Sydney, I saw him, and, and we had a... A, a really nice conversation. He, you know, he would just film the real animals, and and it was amazing that through the voice performance and the story, more than anything, and the music, you can get that emotion. And I knew that Caleb Deschanel could make those emotional moments, you know, with the backdrop of Hans Zimmer's music and these beautiful images. You know, he had he had photographed Black Stallion, and there was I, I felt tremendous emotion in oh, that. That's film. right, he did do that. That but was, there was fantastic. You know, yeah. the the horse wasn't crying in that movie 
So I said, I need somebody with that level of, of, of photographic artistry, and even though he had never done an effects film before. And so we built this toolkit out so that we could collaborate and make it seamless for him to jump in and bring his artistry. And that goes for all departments. I, I really, I didn't, some, so often technology pushes aside the traditions of the past and I, I wanted to figure out a way to embrace this century of tradition. And that dealt with who I worked with, how they worked, and the workflow on the set because they give you new tools and they're like, anybody could walk up to the screen and move a tree. I'm like, that's not how it works on a film set. You got a green, you know, you got, you got a set dresser and you talk to the AD and you tell, and they keep track of what each department's doing. Wow. And so we kept that organization that a live action film would have. And so as all these new people who are writing code and this new culture of, uh, uh, of technical people were learning the film culture at the same time. And when they were setting lights, you set lights in a much different way when you're in a video game or in an animated film than you do when you're live action. And so Caleb Deschanel would sit down and say, no, just put one light, don't put seven lights, just put one light there and move it now. And he would teach them how to set lights. So we had this real cultural exchange between tech and cinema that I, I, was, uh, I was very excited about. That's one of the things I'm most proud of on this one. It was beautiful, and I guess your assistant director, um, Dave Vangus, must have Dave Vangus, yeah, must have had a whole new set of tools to explore and work with, and a different way of working than any other picture that's ever been made. I imagine. Yeah, we we had learned, we had been through motion capture, which was had a similar workflow in the planning of the Jungle Book, but on this one, we were inventing all new tools and a new way of doing it, but it's great to have that voice on the set of somebody who knows about movies. And also it becomes down to between him and, and Kim Richards also, who served as second, uh, who was a trainee on Jungle Book. And now because she was learning all the technical things was able to move up through the ranks quickly because it's such a specific skill set to be working on these technical films. And they would do things, because I would say to them things that normally you'd be asking the animator to do. I'd say help coordinate the background. I want this shot to ha have some movement. And they would talk to the animators. And so we would have the same workflow that I'm used to from live action. And so I had that collaborative environment that, uh, that I need to be creative. I don't, I'm not off on my own writing everything down on a piece of paper and presenting it to people. So I, now, now those ADs are, have a skill set that they've learned on your film that makes them incredibly valuable for future films. I, I hope so. That's the hope is that we bring this live action culture into these technical films because you know it, it could very easily go a different way and and follow more the workflow of a video game you know cinematic or uh, or the way uh, or an animation workflow but i think we could really plug into these you know the skill set of all these people who know so much about lighting about storytelling about camera operating about directing and and now with the success of this film I hope that people look to how we did it because they would be inheriting the culture uh, of live action film even as film itself, literally the, the medium of film is disappearing and, and as things become digital, that doesn't mean that we should do away with all the things, all these traditions that have developed and these skills that have developed over so much time. Again, like you said, just because you can. It doesn't just apply to the camera movement but ways of working that Hollywood has developed over a century that have proven to be very effective. And these are people with a lifetime of experience and artistry. And, you know, we, we often confuse the tools with the, with the artist or the medium with, the, with what you're creating. And 
this is the most handmade film I've ever done because all of these things that people get preoccupied with, they're just tools for these artists to hand paint every frame. And it takes somebody with an eye for lighting to be able to create an image. It's not the computer that does it. It's the artists that do it. And so I, I just, I always, everybody asks about the tech, but I always want to reiterate, no, it is hundreds of people at the end of the credit roll who have worked hundreds of hours on every image. Every performance is done invisibly, hopefully, by an animator. Every set is done by, a, you know, by, by, by an artist. So, and the sims that we had to develop for the fur, for the water, for the fire, for the, you know, uh, the, way the, the way the sand flies through the air. It's little things that you don't notice because when they do their job right, it's invisible and it just looks like you're looking at a photographed image. Would you have uh, particular animators just doing Simba, just doing one character, or, or no, did animate, were they forced to work on all the different characters? I wouldn't say forced. Um, <laughs> They had the opportunity to work on. Uh, I had Andy Jones, who I had worked with on, um, on Jungle Book, who, who won the Academy Award for that film, who uh, had previously worked with Jim Cameron. A lot of the people I worked with were Jim Cameron's team from Avatar. So I inherited a lot of that talent and a lot of that knowledge and tech. And that was our jumping off point for Jungle Book. And now we've developed it further. Uh, and as we are working with Andy, Andy has teams. We had an animation team in Los Angeles that was feeding the game engine, which was a much simpler form of animation, enough to set cameras. And then when those dailies from those cameras were cut together, the whole last year went away from that process and back to the workflow of an animated film, where I was then directing the animators directly through, um, most of them were in, in London working for MPC, but we would have a link and I would have dailies for several hours a day as you would on an animated movie. Because everything, once the shots were set, you had to refine everything within that frame and make little adjustments to the camera, to the, to the characters. So it started as an animated film and then we, we inserted this live action workflow into the middle in VR and then, it, then, it, then we finished it like you would an animated film. In that live-action workflow aspect of it, you jumped to where there were cameras, but going back one step, did the artists and yourself have to create an environment in the virtual world first and then do a location scout in that virtual environment? Yeah, it's not unlike what you do. I mean, you're, it's the same thing when you have set extensions or when you're deciding on what sets to build in, in real life. You, you start with... Um, photographs or drawings or things that are evocative of what you'd like it to look like. Your production designer, in our case, James Chinland, started putting up, uh, uh, art. we did scouts in, 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 in Africa, so we had images from Africa, we had images from documentaries, we started to bring on, of course, this fantastic art department that would draw keyframes, as you would on the, the Marvel movies we did. And so those key those keyframe moments from the from the story start to populate the wall of your conference room and you start to walk around and get a feel for it together and you start to make adjustments and Caleb comes in, comments on the lighting, we would in Photoshop paint over them. And so we had a, a room full of images that we thought were right. And then, because it was an interesting set of challenges here because it had to look real, but it also had to look like Lion King. So any image we had, it had to tick both those boxes. It had to look like it could have really been photographed, but be evocative of the original film. And so we started to get a look for the film. 
and then James Chinlin would build it out with his department, with uh, with the VAD team, and we would create a digital environment that could then be uploaded into virtual reality, and then we could, yes, put on the headsets and walk around Pride Rock, and once Andy Jones started animating everything, instead of just going to render, we would pull that in, we'd have suggested camera positions based on our scouts, and then we would go in with our camera crew, and we had a proper shooting schedule where we would go in there and, and set cameras and, and tracks and moves and do takes and hand those dailies over to the, the editors, let them do their job. Don't just give them, like in previs, don't just give them what you asked for. Give them a whole take of every camera angle and let them decide what the best angles are. And so that's why you start to get this organic feel, hopefully, from the film. Wow. Well, um, working with Caleb, for instance, to get specific about working in the virtual world, being an old school technician, in the old days, Caleb would have gone to this location and said, Johnny, put a 10K up there with a straw gel. Now, how does he, he doesn't have the knowledge, I don't, I don't think before he made your film, to communicate in technical terms with the lighting animators. So how No, but we did the same thing. We made it like what you just said. We'd go in there and say, well, where's the sun? And we could adjust, not just, not the time of day that you shoot, but where, what position we want the sun in, so we get the backlight, let's say. Uh, and if we were in a set where we needed to augment with, with lighting, he would say, put a 10K there. And we would then make the people on the boxes figure out the way to light it as, as a gaffer would in a real, in a, in a live action film. So we made everything as user friendly as we could. And you could actually, even with the tool set we have, you could click on a light and put a 10K up yourself if you wanted to. So John, it's, you're not on a set, you're on, you're, are you literally in a mission control situation? We're, it depends when, you know, uh, when we're all in VR, you'd see everybody in goggles and we would have hand controllers where we have a toolkit where we could spawn a camera or I could take a Polaroid, I could switch lenses, I could leave the Polaroid there and bring Caleb over to look at the shot that I took. He could take a Polaroid, or we had like a tilt brush type tool where I could actually draw in 3D in the air and, and with an arrow draw like I was drawing over a storyboard except it would be over 3D space. But um, you don't need actually a large physical space at all, do you? You could just do it in a garage. You we could, we could have done there. it small. We did certain uh, operating over it. We, but we liked having a big space because we would then bring in like Steadicam operators. And we would have them actually move in a real way because if you scale their movement, it okay. starts to lose some of the, right. the texture. And for the circle of life shot, when we come in, when, that helicopter shot when we fly in to, the, to see um, Mufasa, we tried to do that with a spline and it looked fake and we ended up bringing in a drone operator and we had a drone operator in our volume flying a drone around our digital miniaturized digital set. Wow, that's, that's attention yeah. to detail. I mean, they, to know that that floating camera is not, um, not a helicopter, it's, it, and that was, you know. It actually scaled properly to be like a drone and then we would have wow. drone shots in like Can You Feel the Love Tonight where, the, where it's going too fast for how fast they're running and you have to back pan. All those little things and cutting out when the shot falls apart and not making every shot perfect from cut to cut, but making it that you're cutting out, like with nature photography, you want to use every frame of that. If you're seeing two lions fight, you're not going to get multiple takes of that. And so you cut when they roll behind the rock. You don't cut when it's interesting and exciting like you would in a superhero fight. That's cool. Yeah. 
So it's, it's to cool. give it that look, that documentary look. So all of it was to serve the sensibility of, hey, let's make this look like we really filmed it. Because if, we, if it just looks like an animated, even though we used animation techniques, we wanted the, the texture of it to feel live action because we, anything else would have felt very redundant with the original, which still holds up. Is the role of the editor diminished with that so much planning has to go into every shot? It's almost like you're designing from the sound of that for that particular cut when the elephant went behind the rock when you're getting out. Is it, does it step on the editor's art? In our version of it, in, in traditional animation, I think animators are more organizing all the, all the content that's being created by, through this process. But in ours, we actually, the, editor, uh, the editors were actually making decisions as you would with live action dailies. So we would deliver them redundant footage and we would deliver them multiple takes and they would have to pick what takes we wanted. We would circle them just like you would on a live action film, but at the end of the day, I like my editor to pick what's best, not based on what I remember from the set, but the footage should speak. And so I'm very, I empower my editors very much. It's a very important position because they're really your, they're really your co-pilot through this process. And I, and I want them to be my set of eyes and they're the ones who are gonna break the news to you that the take is too long. And you know what I mean? They're, they're the first ones who give you the, 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 the cold bucket of water of reality that yeah. tell you, I know you love this moment, but it's lingering a little bit too long. Let's keep it, let me trim the scene down a little bit. Sounds like you have a nice editor. <laughs> Why, how do you, what's your editor like? Well, my editor, I'll be driving back from the set of a picture, one in particular called Drag Me to Hell. I say to Bob Morosky. Great movie, on, by the way. On, thanks, on the phone I say, thank you. Uh, Bob, uh, you're kind of quiet. Did I miss something from last night? Did I get all the over the shoulders and all the close-ups? You got that. I said, well, did I miss something? He says, just one thing. I said, what? The performances. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I'll do better. But he, he's pretty rough on you when you don't deliver. Well, you need the tough love of an editor, I think. I think that's a good partner. And, and but, but the editors, in a way, are more empowered because once you leave a location, they got to make do with what you got. But in this case, they could order up a shot. And so what we found happened, and, and why you really need a very um, collaborative group, is that departments start to overlap. So a cinematographer is there while the editor is assembling. And so the cinematographer might weigh in in a way they don't normally get to. And your editor might say, I could have used a close-up that's a little bit closer on access, or I could have used something a little bit wider to get a little bit more of the body language. And so you could order that shot up. And because you could just bring that, that file back up. John, when you talk about different takes for the editor to look at though, you've already determined the animated, you've recorded the voice, you've determined the animated performance. So we're more talking about uh, camera angle, movement. Yes. Uh, okay, a, a speed of the camera, what have you, the feel of the- Right, and then I would go back in and I would, if I needed to adjust performance, that would be in the animation portion in post-production. And then Rob Legato, who is my animation supervisor and second unit director, uh, excuse me, my, my VFX supervisor and, and second unit director, if that's not confusing, uh, it would be on stage. And so if I would change a performance, I would then feed it back to him. Instead of going back to the vendor, I would feed it back to him and he would operate a camera again over the new finished animation. Oh, so we, it was very great. iterative back and forth, but we always wanted the handmade feel around the camera operating. Did you ever have this, the early stage where you had storyboards just storyboards on a reel 
Like, yeah. So we had, again, if you had come in the first year, it would have looked just like an animated movie. We basically did every step. And if you look at the credits, it was the same crew you would have on an, animate, on an animated film. The big difference was in layout that's normally done on a computer by one person who's making a lot of decisions about lighting, choreography, performance. There's one person who's overseeing a lot of that work. It's like previs. Yes. You know? But in this case, instead of the previs person or the, or the layout artist saying, here's where the camera should go, here's how the camera should move, here's where the light should be, here's, you know, uh, you're letting your department heads weigh in. And not just weigh in by looking over their shoulder and consulting, but weigh in by walking around on the set while you're shooting takes like you would in a real movie. So everything was to make it look like a real movie on the set and on the screen. You've dealt with so many great actors and got so many fantastic performances. Uh, I didn't know Seth Rogen could sing. Man, that was really great. Um, and, uh, and funny when he was a little off-key on purpose on t at times. It wasn't on purpose, but I'll, I'll, pa <laughs> I'll pass it along. I kept it in, though. <laughs> it was great. It was great. It was really funny. Um, he was surprised. He, I ran into him at the DGA meeting. And he was surprised he sounded so good. I said, I didn't know you could sing. He says, I can't, John. Cut together like 60 takes. This note I hit that time. <laughs> then this note I hit that time. He yeah, said you I would, I, well, the same thing with performances. So what this does, too, as a director, is it allows you to concentrate on the thing you're, you're not dividing your focus. And, and I don't know what it's like for you, but certainly on the big ones, on the big movies where there's so much going on, it's, you have to kind of multitask and you're talking to the actors about their performance, but then you're also talking to the DP and you're talking to your line producer, your AD, and you're looking at the schedule and your shot list, how much time you have left. And you, you're having to juggle these things and try to create this, um, this peaceful environment for when you're actually dealing with the actors and pushing everything aside. It takes a, that's, that's a big skill that you learn over time to be able to compartmentalize things so that you're not bringing that energy into the performance space. That's so accurate and intelligent that you'd mention that because really, in an ideal situation, you want to get through all that, which you have to do in the moment, so that you can do the most important thing and direct the actor. Yes. So you, you want to, it's all about performance. At its core, you're photographing all those things that you think are important are, but really the thing that the human element is, is usually your cast or your star or that the human moment that you're capturing using all this technical stuff, whether on a live action film or otherwise. And so what this allowed me to do was concentrate completely on the actors and not worry about camera at all. Wow. And so I would take that room that had all that tech gear in and I would sweep it all out I would, ha I would bring in Fisher Booms like they use on sitcoms and I would use lavaliers and I would have my actors and they could hold their script in their hand and I would run it like a theater rehearsal. We had a black box theater. We would have some video reference for the animators. No motion capture, nothing technical at all. And I would be in the room just with them, no big crew, and it felt like a rehearsal space. And I'd run it and then we'd do another take. We'd run it again. We'd, we'd have long lenses with video cameras you know, 20, 30 feet away from them. And I would go in there and say, okay, try this line or let's do it again. Or I would let them improvise, overlap, make eye contact, work the scene. And, and now I had every voice performance I needed. Great. And not only that, I had improv lines that nobody, you know, thought of, or I'd have the writer there, Jeff Nathanson, who would, if he saw them do something or they wanted a line, he'd write something or I'd come up with something. So it felt very much like an independent film in those, in those areas. Wow, how personal. 
I guess that's the secret of making something so powerfully emotional like this is you get back to the basics of that human I, it is all connection. about the humanity and and that's our medium is about empathy and humanity and and the human condition and 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 you have to even when new tech avails itself to you you have to prioritize it behind the human storytelling aspect of it and having an understanding of the technology you could help shape the technology to support that and you could also not get the more you learn about it, the more you, re, you know, you're not preoccupied with it and you can make it go away. And, and so in this film, we had so, you know, so little freedom as to how much we could deviate story-wise that I wanted to make sure that the moments that we could deviate like Timon and Pumbaa or areas where we're expanding like with, the, with Sarabi and Nala, that I wanted to bring more of that um, sponta spontaneity and, and the human feel to that, to the singing, to the music. Any place I could bring humanity into it, I wanted to, to help create the illusion that you weren't looking at something that was completely artificial. Well, John, uh, he's holding up the sign, so I think it's going to be time minute. for us. Yes. What's, what are you going to do with that last minute, Sam? What's the one for the people here and the people listening on their, on their iPhones, on the podcast, in the gym, or in traffic? What's the one-minute question you have for me that's going to tick all those boxes and end with a bang? Well, okay. How does it feel to have co-starred in Spider-Man Far From Home, the most successful Spider-Man in the history of the Spider-Man films? <laughs> no hard feelings. No hard feelings. Um, and then have it rule the box office for three weeks, only to be replaced by your film that you directed, <laughs> Lion King that now is heading toward a billion dollars. I will say this, and I'm not being facetious, that if you had not been such a gracious host and you had not completely established the whole, our whole understanding of superhero movies through the first Spider-Man at a time when we needed it most, at a time when our country needed a story like that, and if you had not brought the innocence of, a, of the rise of a hero and that whole Joseph Campbell arc uh, I would never be doing what I'm doing. And if you had not been such a supportive friend over the years for me to pick your brain and ask questions, all the way up to being here on stage with me, uh, I don't know that I would be able to be doing anything I'm doing. So I throw it back at you with complete gratitude. You're a great friend, and thank you for doing this for me today. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.